0: Welcome back to No One Understands. My name is Colleen McGrath. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, and I'm your host. Today, on our fourth episode, we're going to visit the topic of treatment again. We know for most pediatric cancer families, treatment becomes a marathon. That treatment brings emotional challenges to both the patient and their caregivers. It also brings challenges to family and friends and community as they try to navigate support during the months of hospital stays, medications, and procedures. Our first guest, Beth Strotman, mom of Luke, a three-time cancer survivor, is here to share their experiences with treatment.
1: I'm Beth Strotman. I live in Deerfield, Illinois. We've lived here for 28 years. Um, I have been a mom for 34 years. And um, I love that job the best, but second best, I love making cookies and some people know me as the cookie lady. So I have an escape which allows me to be creative, but um, more importantly, I love being a mom. Four boys keeps me really busy.
0: So why don't you tell me um, a little bit about what treatment looked like for your family? And you can be as brief or as in-depth as you want. Um, And i like, I know you guys have encountered some transplants, and different things. So even if you want to cover, you know, what types of treatment you had to face, um, however you're comfortable.
1: The treatment for neuroblastoma was very, very harsh. And... um... The doctors had said, here is our plan, you know, sign away all these papers. We had to sign the form that said, your child will likely lose part of his hearing. And fast forward, Luke even said to us when he was a teenager, why did you sign that piece of paper? Uh, So you had to sign forms. Uh, You were assigned a social worker. And I had never even met a social worker and I didn't understand why we needed one, but... She was our saving grace and helped be the liaison between the hospital and our family because we really didn't understand much of what was going on, especially did we have any rights? How do we advocate for Luke? We were just following directions at that point. The first cancer, we just followed what they told us to do. And um, it involved so much chemo. But at some point, his body started to fail and they came to us and said, well, we told you he needed this program to survive, but he's not going to survive if we continue the treatment. So they had to stop his treatment, give his body a break before they went to radiation. And luckily, again, radiation was at the neighboring hospital, Northwestern, so we could drive there every day. Grandma came with us. And during this time, Luke was very, very sick. He was four years old, but his weight had dropped to 25 pounds. The biggest issues were his stomach, his nausea, And so he became very, very small, very weak and actually stopped walking for a while, even back into, you know, not using the toilet. He just became so weak, but the treatment did work. And as horrible as the treatment was, he did lose part of his hearing, uh, but we also had a miracle that his stage four tumor, when they went in to see what was there, all the tumor was gone, completely gone, but it was pretty rough.
0: Sounds like it. Oh, I'm sorry. I wish I could hug you right now. Um, I feel bad stirring all this up, but I hope you know this is going to help so many families. Like, I just am so grateful. I,
1: I will tell you that I went back over emails in CaringBridge and I was shocked at some of the things that I had written. So it was actually good to go back over it.
0: What shocked you? Tell me a little bit about that.
1: How horrible the treatment was, How horrible. how horribly sick he was. Um, How um, I was put in a hard position being the main caregiver. And as Bill and I would joke, I had to be bad cop and he would come in and be good cop. And the doctors didn't appreciate how I had to advocate for Luke because sometimes I was pretty fierce.
0: What was the hardest part for you watching Luke go through treatment?
1: I read this question and I thought about it and there was so much. So give me a second.
0: Yeah. You can say anything and everything you want to.
1: The hardest thing was he was in so much pain so much of the time, just so much pain. And to the point where he was given methadone. And to be given methadone, even for myself, I've had pain from surgeries or whatever. I can't imagine the level of pain I would need to be in to be prescribed methadone. And that was the hardest for me to watch him in excruciating pain, knowing that we approved this procedure, which caused the pain, but it was his chance at life. And it's just hard to, uh, you, you struggle with
0: that. That's tough to think about. So that, that makes perfect sense. So that was the hardest part for you. Um, how did knowing that when Luke went through treatment, you obviously had three other kids as well, and a husband, and you guys have a big, beautiful life. How did having to balance treatment on a day-to-day basis, how did that impact what life looked like for the Stratmans and for you?
1: It had a huge impact on the family life. And as the mother, I didn't want to leave Luke's bedside, especially when he was three and he had been diagnosed. My husband and his best friend, who happens to be a doctor, sent me home, insisted I get in the car and go home because my other two boys needed me. And we just counted on, we were blessed at the time to have two local grandmothers and the grandmothers took over and I maybe the aunts came too. I don't know because I was never home, <laughs> but there were people who took over our life. And I was shocked that when cancer hit our family, everything stopped for me every single thing every friend every obligation there was nothing else for me to focus on except luke and yes i would come home and bill would come to the hospital and i'd hug the kids and i couldn't find anything because these loving people who took over our house had to manage it their way and i was so grateful because my other boys needed me and they were afraid luke was going to die and I couldn't assure them that he wasn't going to die. So we just had to show them that we were here.
0: You talk about having like the grandmas and the aunts and you kind of had like, you had people in your life that were able to help keep the boys' life keep go the boys that were at home's life keep kind of going as regularly scheduled as you can with something like that, right?
1: Yeah, I, I missed out on a lot of the brothers' schooling activities, missed out on a lot of things. I didn't get to take Mark to college. I didn't ever see his freshman room. I didn't meet his roommates. So they were big things. And as a matter of fact, when he graduated, Luke had cancer again. So he took me on a walk around Marquette's campus to show me his school because I was really not a big part of his college years. And even though it was just 70 miles away, There was something going on with luke and i had to be the one to take care of luke because bill had to keep the rest of the show running
0: yeah no i get that and mark is such a great son i can like i don't think i can picture anything more vividly than him being like you're here and i'm going to show you everything i love about marquette like i can (laughs) literally he has such um he's he's such a happy kid he's such a happy
1: well and and mark basically had to raise matthias when Matthias was in second grade, um, he took care of him the whole summer. Wow! So I think they do share a special bond. Um, there were just times in life that the boys had to rise to the occasion themselves. You know, if they were old enough to take care of Matthias, then they had to do it. And Mark was just the right personality and the right time of his teenage years to be the one to do it.
0: That's awesome. Um,
1: so everybody stepped in, but a lot of it's a blur to me.
0: I mean, let's be honest, half the families that listen to this are going to be like, yeah, I had an older child that had to help take care of a younger sibling. So for you, did you notice that your emotions or your motivation or your energy to treatment in any of the diagnoses, did you know that you felt one way at the very beginning? And then did you notice if you changed along the way?
1: From the beginning of the cancer diagnosis to the end of it, it seems that as a caregiver you go from shock to i'm you know so invested in this and i am immersed and this is all i'm going to do to get this child to make it through this treatment that the doctors have given us to um there's a little bit of anger in there of course because your child is struggling so and then there's a little bit of relaxing at the end and almost wishing that you could just get away from it for a little bit and that seemed to be the same for each cancer but from one to two to three i definitely became more of an advocate by the third cancer and i think that's when um i have a little bit of a reputation with some of the older doctors because i would speak up a lot more because now we had a history now even i knew what worked or didn't work And I could talk to the doctors instead of them being above me. I felt like we were in this together. And um, I'm not putting myself above them because I was even one-on-one with the um, people who cleaned our rooms. You know, it was, everybody was treated the same. It was a big team. And I don't want to ever go through this again, but I do believe that advocating, even if it's painful or embarrassing or humiliating, it's the only way to to go. The one thing that stayed the same through all of it was um, a sister-in-law, Molly, gave me a notebook the first week Luke was diagnosed at Children's Memorial in 1999. And we went through that notebook and we, I think we're on maybe our fifth notebook um, and they've gotten nicer and cuter and fancier because I take care of the notebook. But that was always a way for me to have a little more control of taking down important information. And a couple times, even the doctors would ask to refer back to our notebook. So I think the notebook became more important too, as I learned what was important, what to put in the notebook. And of course, there's a lot of extraneous, silly things in there. But dad would fill it in, mom would fill it in. Treatment, uh, reactions, um, special dates for, um, a big test or make sure you talk to this doctor or make sure your DEXA scan is every five years. And then I'd write down the years. Okay. What's five years from now, or what's eight years for some other test, And it just became the, the one place where we could refer quickly to what's going on. And, um, So that stayed the same for the long-term and there is his history in those notebooks. So we could always flip back um, instead of the 900 pages of his file that were transferred to the Northwestern Star Clinic, his file from Children's and Lurie was over 900 pages. That's insane.
0: Um, Is that something you would recommend other parents do to like find their own kind of notebook and and keep? Yes. Yes. So you have a little bit of control over your own.
1: Oh, for sure. And what Mom, what Bill found it helpful because we alternated nights at the hospital and we couldn't remember to tell each other everything. So whoever was on that night, you'd come in and you'd kind of look back the last two nights and say, okay, what was he doing? What did he eat? Um, you know, kind of what was the scenario? And that helped the next parent going in for the next two nights and kind of helped You know yeah just tell everything that was going on
0: i love that that's such like a caregiver pro tip i feel like we have to share i love that did you notice a shift towards how you handled treatment or how luke handled treatment again from like treatment one to ten and that could be like did you notice luke's attitude change as chemo went on through a diagnosis
1: Oh, for sure. When he was, let's just say four years old, because he was only three for 10 days. (laughs) He was so sweet, so charming. He would say thank you when they gave him a bone marrow aspirate. He was intrigued with, you know, uh, simple things like television and cartoons. And then when he was in eighth grade, 12 and 13, he shut down. And he would not talk to the doctors he knew he did he, he knew they couldn't make him speak the infamous episode of the doctor who sat there while he was laying in bed watching tv and the doctor saying luke does your throat hurt today does your stomach hurt does you know your head hurt and luke is just ignoring the doctor just will not even acknowledge him and he finally says luke is there something bothering you and luke reaches across his chest and points at the doctor and he was just an angry kid and at home he was okay with us you know he didn't take it out on us but the minute we stepped foot into that hospital whether it then be subsequent clinic visits and that he wouldn't talk to people he was not friendly he was angry and when he was then 17 his senior year It was more pronounced, and he really, as you were saying, he didn't want anyone else in that circle. The less amount of people he had to speak to on a daily basis, the better. He did not want to talk to anybody.
0: That had been really hard to watch. It was. He's such Uh. well, you know, not that I'm telling you anything you didn't know, but, like, we got to see him at camp every summer, and he was so happy.
1: That's just it. I would want to say to people... This isn't who he is. He's not mean. He's not rude. Yeah. But when he enters this hospital, he is unfortunately rude and won't answer their questions, or he'll say, I don't know. Um, He's at 26, he's coming out of that a little bit now. I think it's in the past, and we're not being treated for cancer. He's being treated for a lot of long-term effects. So it's, you know, stuff they can take care of things they can heal. And, um, he's able to deal with that now, but it was, it was pretty much his way of shutting everybody out.
0: When you think of, um, of other people supporting someone going through cancer and that can be, they could be supporting the patient or supporting the whole family. What's a piece of advice you would give them on how to like support you know, another pediatric cancer family.
1: I guess it's really easy to text somebody and say, if you need anything, please call me, please text me. And you'll never get a call or a text. Mm -hmm. So if there is something you can do, I mean, everybody needs to, at some point, either take transportation or drive a car or eat. And if it can be as simple as, providing the family with a gift card for gas, for some sort of transportation, for some sort of a meal. Because I will tell you, during each of Luke's cancers, the financial strain sometimes is just so overwhelming. And I don't know if people really realize that, because they figure, oh, your insurance is taking care of everything. Well, it's not, and there are so many things you need, even if you drop off a gift card to Walgreens or CVS, because it seemed like we were always there for something.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, for me to give to somebody else, I think that would be the one thing that would be accepted. It would be good for everybody. Um, Just help them out with some of their expenses because you might not always see what they need to buy, but they're going to have lots of expenses.
0: Is there anything that you had to learn that you wish you would have known, you know, right when you guys were dealing with childhood cancer for the first time or the second time or the third time? That's
1: a really good question. I wish I had known that if you ask, you will receive. And that first time I didn't know what to ask for. I didn't know how to ask for things and I'm not meaning at home, not asking for help. I mean, asking in the hospital for help or saying, you know, my son has this, do you have help for this? You know, I I just, I was ignorant to what was available to me. Mm. And I think I learned more of that as one, I got older, and two, as I was more familiar with how a hospital works.
0: Tell me a little bit about what life looks like today for the Strotman family.
1: Well, I love it that we're kind of in a boring phase.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
1: That, you know, there's hope for Luke's long-term, uh, healthy, happy life. There are bumps along the road. And I have learned to embrace Northwestern because it was very scary to move from Lurie Children's and Children's Memorial to northwestern. It's not the same comfy cozy, but we have already had to see so many specialists and they're there and they cover everything and I just feel so confident that Luke will get the care he needs moving forward for the next, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and I feel like our family has made it through and not every family makes it through unscathed. We're still a family unit and I think I think the brothers could actually take over caring for Luke and understanding what he needs. If anything ever happened to Bill or to me, I think we've taught them well that they do need each other. And again, we're moving as one.
0: Thank you so much, Beth. We're so grateful that our next guest is actually Beth's son that you just spoke so much about, Luke Stratman. Luke, welcome to No One Understands. Thank you for being here.
2: My name is Luke Stratman. Uh 27 years old, or 26, going to be tw- uh, 27 uh, this June. I earned a uh, culinary degree at the College of Lake County. And I am helping coach the uh, football and the baseball team for the high school. So pretty much I'm busy all year round. But of course, when I'm not doing that, I am being a part of great program of Camp One Step and all the great activities that we do for families.
0: All right. So let's jump in. So why don't you, um, I know you've had, um, you battled cancer a couple times. And so why don't you tell me first, like what ages you were each time you had cancer? Why don't you kind of like start there if you don't mind?
2: Yeah. So I was first officially diagnosed with uh, neuroblastoma um, at the age of three, but it was 10 days before my fourth birthday. So very very young uh to start out with um, obviously um had treatment had so many great doctors and nurses um, i got and then I got my second cancer leukemia uh right around age uh twelve or thirteen i believe um, and it they kind of put the correlation um how the treatments from the first cancer probably was the cause of the second cancer which you know obviously to us seemed a little odd being it was eight years apart it's like how could it take so long but that's just from what i believe we were told and then obviously needed a bone marrow transplant i was able to get that from my brother mark uh, as he was a perfect match for me, uh and then four years later, at about seventeen uh you know the leukemia had returned, and they found that Mark was uh too perfect of a match, which we we actually found that to be kind of hilarious, like you like you know they told us you know we need to find a match for him, and now you're saying there's too perfect of a match, so yeah, the, the older treatments, I definitely remember. Um, obviously, you know, first reaction is being told, you know, you yeah, got cancer again, is, you know, why? Like, you know, why does this have to happen to me? And then all of a sudden, you, you start to think about, okay, how does this going to affect, you know, family members? How is this going to affect all my friends having to tell them that, you know, hey, you know, I hate to say this, but I got to, I got to go through all of this again. Um, And it's it's definitely more hard uh, emotionally than physically just because, you know, once you go into treatment and stuff, you've got to be away from everybody. You know, you can't see family, you can't see friends, Uh, you can't actually be with them, you know. And obviously the treatment, you know, it took its toll on my body, you know, loss of hair, loss of weight and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely more of an emotional thing than a physical thing. When you talk about the emotions, do you like, is there like any emotions in particular
0: that come to mind when you think about when you were going through treatment as a teenager? I
2: I, I think the first, um, I think one of the first thoughts is, you know, how do I tell people that, that, I think the third one hit the hardest just because, you know, All my friends and I, you know, we're about to go into our senior year of high school, so we're obviously all older. We all now fully understand what this kind of stuff looks like. And so for them, you know, it was definitely hard having to tell them and saying, like, you know, hey, we're not going to be able to have a senior year together for most of the time just because I'm going to be in the hospital. Family, obviously, it's always going to hit them hard regardless of whether it's the first time or the 10th time. But, you know, I think at that point, you know, we had trust that the doctors know what they're doing. They've got, they've dealt with me for all these years. They know my history. They know what's going to work for me, what's not. And so we just had real good hands.
0: Tell me a little bit like about your attitude and emotions um, towards going through treatment at the very, like the very first part of, you know, starting treatment like after you'd been going through it for months or a year like how did how did your perspective change how did your emotions change um tell me a little bit about what that looked like for you
2: yeah it, it kind of started out as you know pretty much feeling all the emotions you know anger you know why why do i have to do through all this again you know sadness you know i'm about to miss pretty much the most important part of my life you know my scene you know my senior year of high school this is going to be the Final time I'm go I'm going to classes with all my friends. You know the kids I've basically grown up with. You know, and that was the beginning. And just kind of, it all wore out as time went on. You know, it would there would be days where I was literally just feeling you know almost depressed, like you know, like I I don't want to be doing this anymore, but I know I pretty much have to. And there were times where the do- where the doctors. F- You know, they would diagnose me and say, you know, he's battling depression right now. And I would say, no, you're wrong. You know, I'm not depressed, obviously. But looking back on it, it's like, no, I was definitely depressed. I was probably depressed more than any other emotions I could have dealt with. Um, But, you know, it's just because of everything I was going through. And, you know, toward the end, you know, it's more of like relief. Like, ah, this is finally over with, you know. I can start getting back to, you know, having that normal life again that I used to have before we started all this treatment. There were times where, you know, I'd see my friends and they're all like, you know, oh, you you look like you're doing so great. And I'd be like, yeah. And then, you know, we, you know, we'd leave. And then it's like five minutes later, I just go back to that depression state, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like, I just had to put on that fake attitude face for them because it's like, you know, what's it going to do to them if they see that, you know, I'm not handling this well, you know, it's it's going to bring them down.
0: Yeah. And that's that's also a really good point. I think sometimes through treatment, it's not purposeful, but you end up feeling like you have to take care of other people, right? Like you, you just kind of talked about your friend's emotions and you ended up feeling like you needed to protect their emotions a little bit, right? If you were talking to um, friends or family members of someone else in your life going through treatment, would you give them any advice on how to support that person?
2: Just be there as much as your schedule allows you to. You know, don't try to you know over push yourself, but definitely don't under push it. There there may be days where you're thinking like, is today a good day to you know text this person or give this person a call. And there are going to be times where you're going to think, yeah, probably not, you know. My advice would be, just go ahead and do it. And if they say, you know, hey, like I would say, you know, not today, maybe tomorrow or next week. You've got now a schedule of, okay, this is when I can talk to him. This is when I shouldn't talk to them. Again, just be there as much as your schedule is going to allow you to. If you got stuff going on, if you're studying for a really important test, forget about me, you know, go worry about that test. If you got a big basketball or football game coming up, worry about that game first, you know?
0: Yeah, but like also let you know how it went, right? I always think like, uh, it it was always like nice to feel like I was in the loop, right? So like, I hoped if I had friends that had like the big basketball game, like, sure, I would like find out how it went the next day, right? And yes, some days you'd feel a little sad you weren't there. But like, it was still nice to feel included, right?
2: Right, like like there were times because obviously I had to miss most of the football season um, my senior year and pretty much every single practice, you know, I was upset, I was missing all that. But, you know, every every now and then I'd get a text from a friend like, you know, man, I wish you were here because, you know, this happened at practice and I'd be like, there's no way that happened. But then <laughs> it's like, I hear the same thing from five guys and it's like, okay it did happen so <laughs> yeah you, you definitely wish you weren't missing out on so much but right you if you got but you know if you have people who will let you know like hey here's what you missed and or you know here's what you didn't miss
0: when you think back to like when you were on treatment as um let's say a teenager or whatever like your second and third treatments um knowing, you know, you know that age a little bit better, would you look back, when you look back, would you do anything differently?
2: Well, that's a, that's a pretty tough one, because obviously, everything happened for a particular reason. Sure. Um, I would probably say I would be a little bit more truthful to myself. If like, I'm having a bad day, I would speak up to somebody, you know, and just Whether it's mom, dad, one of my three brothers, um, or even a doctor and just say, you know, hey, you know, I'm feeling like this today. You know, you know, is there anything you could maybe do to help out with that? Um, That would probably just be the biggest one. Just just be a little bit more truthful. of What kind of emotions I'd be feeling and just not hold anything back.
0: Luke, thank you so much. That was absolutely incredible. We're so fortunate that you were able to join us today to talk to us about you know, being a three-time cancer survivor, what treatment was like. Uh, you're going to help so many people. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to welcome our next guest. Our next guest is also very special to us at Camp One Step. Uh, Steph Martyr is here with us today. Steph is a cancer survivor, and she is also a child life specialist. So we're going to jump in and let Steph introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her career in child life.
3: I'm Steph Martyr. I am from the northern suburbs of Chicago, so I've lived in this area basically my whole life. And this past year, I've been living in the city, which has been really fun because it's been a really big goal of mine to be here. And I went to Ball State for my undergraduate experience where I studied child development. And then I also went to Erickson Institute where I got my master's in child development, which led me to become a certified child life specialist, which is what I'm practicing today. So tell me a little bit
0: about what a child life specialist is and and what you do?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, as a child life specialist, we really aim to promote positive coping in the hospital and really work to minimize those fears and anxieties surrounding hospitalization and different encounters within the hospital. So a lot of this could look like through preparation, for example. So we really work hard to prepare kids for their medical experiences. And honestly, studies show that children that are prepared for their medical experiences have lesser fears and fewer negative responses in the hospital. So whether a child is going to be having a procedure, we prep them in a way that makes sense for their developmental level. So a way I would prepare, say, for example, surgery for a four-year-old is different than how I would prepare a 14-year-old. So we really adapt that based on what makes sense for that patient. And another thing, too, that kind of coincides with that is doing the procedural support during those procedures. So whether that's providing distraction or really eliciting those coping strategies and helping to promote different pain management strategies just to make that experience a little easier for that patient and honestly family through those situations as well. And we do a lot of family support, a lot of sibling support, and Again, also diagnosis education, so really teaching that patient and family and siblings about what this diagnosis that they're going through and, like, what that means for them and what that treatment may look like, again, in a way that makes sense for that patient based on their developmental level. And we also work really hard to provide that normalization within the hospital, so a lot of opportunities for play and creating those therapeutic play situations that allow a child to be a kid in the hospital. Mm -hmm. You know, hospitalization can take a lot of that away from a kid, so we really work hard to... Help kids be kids in the hospital, and making it as comfortable and easy and fun as possible. Oh, that's amazing! I
0: have a memory that sticks in my head when I was a patient as mm-hmm. a kid, and it was the first time I saw a really little kid on the hemoc floor at U of C, and it was late at night. The little guy couldn't sleep, and the nurse had him on his IV pole, and he like was like racing down the hallways, like pretending like he was in a speed car kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time it clicked for me that, like, whether it's your teenagers or your child years or your toddler years, they're not on pause just because you're in the hospital. You still need to have those years and you still need to have fun. It might be a little harder. But you still need to feel joy and still feel like a kid.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And we honestly work hard to create that and make the hospital a less scary environment and really work to minimize those fears surrounding hospitalization. So really doing what we can to make this experience easy for them because hospitalization can take away so many different aspects of childhood. So mm-hmm. within those opportunities for play, like it really allows children to express how they're feeling and maybe like act through experiences. And we even surround play with, for example, we do a lot of medical play. So that helps prepare patients for their medical experience experiences as well but formulating it in a way that is fun it is a play-based mm-hmm. type of uh, session if that makes sense yeah of course
0: as we get started here why don't you tell everyone like what a little example of what like medical play is
3: yeah of course well medical play can look different especially with different ages and different developmental levels so a way that I would do preparation or I would illicit medical play with a four-year-old is different than the way I would do it with a 14-year-old. So for example, a four-year-old might not understand based on their developmental level what the steps for their surgery that they're going to be having and what that means. But definitely we have different kits. So at the hospital that I work at, we our amazing surgery child life specialists had come up with these surgery kits that were just like all these different like Lego pieces. It was a whole like surgery kit. So there are times where I'll sit down with a patient that's three or four and we'll just play and we'll just play through those experiences and practicing blowing bubbles with the anesthesia mask and oh, wow. practicing putting stickers on with our pole socks and different things like that. So making it fun, but also just allowing them to explore and manipulate those medical tools in that non-threatening way can make it easy for them and normalize that experience for them when they are experiencing that later within the hospital. And then I would assume that reduces a lot of the fear when they're yes. like, oh, this pulse socks or this
0: oxygen mask or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. They saw it used in, like, uh, it can trigger a happy memory and not just a scary memory. You have this incredible career as a child life specialist. What led
3: you to your field? I'm definitely lucky that experiences that I had as a child kind of led me to what I'm doing today as my career. I actually was a pediatric cancer patient. So I am a cancer survivor myself. And I grew up going to Camp One Step, which is honestly, like I say that chemo cured my cancer, but camp cured my spirit. So that's something that's really near and dear to my heart is camp. So I just want to give that little shout out. But (laughs) so I actually had an experience in the hospital. So I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was 11 years old. And I went through 14 months of chemotherapy. I, I started off basically having chemo every week. And then that changed later to every three weeks. So I really went through the ins and outs of being in the hospital and being going to the outpatient clinics and getting chemo and all of that. And there was a time in the hospital where a child specialist really connected with me and really was able to normalize the experience that I was having and created those fun opportunities for me to be able to be a kid in the hospital. Because it, it was a time that I was really bummed out about being in the hospital, but she really made all the difference for me. And that is really when I realized that I also wanted to make a difference to patients and families in the hospital, and I really have never once wavered from that.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about your interactions with like pediatric cancer
3: families and and some things that you might do as a child life specialist? Not only are we providing that education for patients, but we're also providing that education for family and for siblings. And again, a lot of siblings are at home like not understanding what's going on. So a lot of our job is also providing parents with the language to be able to explain that diagnosis to their siblings at home, but we can also be the ones that have those interactions. So unfortunately with COVID, we are not able to have siblings in the hospital, but at the same time, we can do like those virtual visits and really being able to explain like what their sibling is going through in the hospital and also supporting them on the other side as well. Children thrive best when they're given that honest information. And even if that honest information is hard to hear, like children understand more than they can verbally express. So even Mm -hmm. for example, like a three-year-old obviously you're not gonna have that conversation where you're sitting down telling your three-year-old that their older sibling has cancer. But at the end of the day, like suppressing those emotions in front of those your kids can definitely make it hard for them because they can still understand that something's going on. Something's changed and something's different. So some of the biggest advice that we give is that it's okay to show your emotions and it's okay to be upset because we are human. Mm -hmm. Showing your emotions in front of your children and that patient's siblings can help them have those tools to be able to express their emotions as
0: well. So say you have like a newly diagnosed patient at your hospital. Mm -hmm. Are you automatically introduced to that newly diagnosed family or do they have to request to meet you? And I know you only really speak to your hospital, but... I'm just curious. So if like there was a newly diagnosed family listening to this, that they know whether they would have met that person, they would have popped in their hospital room, or if it's something that maybe they should inquire more about.
3: Child life is all over our hospital. So they're in the inpatient units, they're on the pediatric ICU, MRI, the emergency department. We're all over. So whether a child who is going to be a new diagnosis comes through the emergency department, goes into surgery, goes for an MRI, comes up to my unit, we're all constantly giving each other handoff. So we're working as a team to really support this patient and family throughout their journey. And
0: You've talked quite a bit about educating um, kids, and you kind of talked about, like, surgical kits and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and books. Can you think of any other tools you guys regularly use when it comes to, like – Medical play, like things you might utilize in the hospital so families have an idea of what that might look like?
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, medical play can also be as simple as utilizing just like a doctor's kit and going into the room and utilizing a doctor's kit. So having that patient play doctor with me and them checking my heartbeat and them taking my blood pressure and things like that, because at the end of the day, that really normalizes it for them. So when a nurse or a doctor is coming in and doing that on them, they can even make it a whole experience where they play doctor with that doctor as well. Do you have any
0: advice for a newly diagnosed family?
3: Yes, uh, this is a great question. I think as hard as it sounds, we really preach self-care. Like you have to take care of yourself. And of course, these families' worlds have just been rocked. They've been turned completely upside down. But we preach self-care and making sure parents know that you need to take care of yourself in order for you to take care of your child in the Mm -hmm. hospital and your children at home that are just as scared and not knowing what's going on. So really just take care of yourself, do what you need to do to be in your best frame of mind. And of course, you're going through something that not a lot of people are going through that is so scary. But really being able to preach self-care is something that is really important. And also utilizing your support system. That's something that's also very, very important. Recognizing what your community can do for you and recognizing being okay to ask for help. You know, mm-hmm. for myself personally, my family really utilized like our extended family and our community it was so helpful. So that's something that we really preach as well. And there's so many resources. There's so many community-based programs and organizations that are looking to support families in the hospital. So definitely being able to utilize your support system is so important too. And it's it's completely understandable that pa- parents want to be strong and they want to not be able to air their emotions in front of their children. But you're human, you know, mm-hmm. like you're going through something that's so scary and something that completely has changed your life and children who can see those emotions, it helps them be able to express their emotions moving forward too. So that's something too, that it's okay to be sad. It's okay to show your emotions in front of your family. You're going through a lot and you're all going through it together. So it's something that's really important that I try to preach as well.
0: There was a day during treatment where my dad and I were both home and he was trying to get me to go to school. And I was like bawling. I was like, I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I don't care. I have cancer. Don't make me go to school. I don't want to get up. And he started bawling. And we were kind of yelling at each other like teenagers and dads do. Mm-hmm. He was like, I don't want to get up every day either. But I get up for you. And he's like, and you have to get up for me. And then we will figure it out. Together. Oh, you're going to
3: make me cry. <laughs>
0: As a child life specialist, do you recommend any resources outside the hospital setting for
3: families? Yeah, of course. I mean, our job stops in the hospital, but we work hard to make sure they have support outside of the hospital as well. So whether that's making a referral to Make-A-Wish or Bare Necessities or having them work with Cal's Angels, different resources like that continue to help support families in the hospital. And we're now working with another organization called Special Spaces. Special Spaces really works to design a new bedroom for a patient that is going through cancer treatment. So there's many different resources. There's many different organizations out there that want to support you. And we've been in contact with a lot of different um, organizations, too, that we are referring to our patients and families. And Beads of Courage is something, too, that kind of follows our patients in the journey in the hospital. So they get different beads for different milestones, so Mm -hmm. different scans and different you know, time they have chemo and different times that they're in the hospital, there's a bead for everything. Mm. So having those beads and then like for me, my survivorship bead is like hung up in my bedroom at home. Oh. It's something that has always resonated with me. Yeah. So now that I'm in the hospital, like providing that for patients and families in the hospital, it's such a it really comes full circle for me. So there's a lot of resources. There's a lot of organizations that are out there that want to continue to make this as easy as possible for a patient and family going through these types of things. And so then that makes you you're kind of like the connector, right, because you're in patient or you're in the hospital. Yes. So you
0: kind of like make the referrals. Yes.
3: We can like refer families to these different organizations or have that organization reach out to the family. But we're kind of the liaison between the two a lot of the time.
0: That's incredible. That's so great to know. Okay, And then I have to touch on one thing you Mm -hmm. showed me. So you came in from the hospital to our interview and you had your badge on and you showed me something that was on your badge. Will you tell me what that was?
3: Yeah, so there was an IV on my badge. So a lot of people that have been in the hospital, the IV is that poke that goes in your arm that gives your body medicine, gives your body fluids. So I keep that IV on my badge because there's so many times where a patient's going to be getting an IV and that poke within itself creates a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety surrounding that. So when that needle what's creating the poke comes out. It's just that straw in there. So I show patients, again, an example of medical play. Yeah. I show patients that straw and have them touch it, have them explore it, manipulate it, whatever they need to be able to see that. It's just a little... Straw that's giving your body a drink or water or medicine. So that kind of takes that threatening piece out of it for them. So that's something that I just keep on me at all times because you never know when you're going to need to show it. Right. Like the other day, I had a patient that wouldn't move his arm because he's like, I have a needle in my arm. Oh. And I'm like, actually, it's just the straw. I'm explain that whole explanation that right. I just gave to him and showed it to him and he was fascinated by it, it was just a straw and in his arm and it could bend and exactly that, like, I was didn't like you can bend your arm.
0: arm at all costs right
3: absolutely like yeah. yeah so just little things like that and I also on my badge I have like a simple dimple for those who don't know it's like a pop it and then oh, I have okay. like another pee popper fidget so I have a lot of things on me at all <laughs> times trying to pull out my bag of tricks to support our patients in the hospital
0: oh stuff that was incredible thank you so much for being here today You know, we are so lucky to have you as a part of our Camp One Step community. Uh, And we are so thrilled that today you were able to share your expertise with us in your new field and child life. Thank you, Steph. Baird is proud to support Camp One Step. As an employee owned privately held financial firm, Baird knows that caring enough to help can make a world of difference in the lives of those facing enormous challenges. When it comes to creating a brighter future for the community we share, Baird is with you every step of the way. Learn more at BairdDifference.com.